In nomine Patris et Filius, Benedictus Sancti, our Father. Okay, if you haven't grabbed this piece of paper in the back there, grab it now. We're using it tonight. Okay, good. Um, those of you that are here that don't come on uh, Tuesdays, we're doing a Salvation History Bible Study. Flyers back there, you're more than welcome to join us. We will be having our fourth study next Tuesday. Um, I also have the flyers for Dr. Cutterback. You probably already have this. If you don't have it, it's back there. Put it on your fridge so you don't forget because it's a three-part series. They'll be here next Wednesday and the following Wednesday, and hopefully we'll start a little earlier. Uh, you also have a calendar back there that you can grab for upcoming events. And last but not least, you get a new flyer tonight for Saturday, February 17th. Dr. William Marshner is coming uh, for uh, two morning classes on Islam. Don't miss this. It'll be good. Um, and that's it. There's your flyers. There's all my announcements. Dr. Cutterback has a book back there on friendship. It's very good. I recommend it. Ten dollars. Dr. Cutterback. We'll go, by the way, we will go one, just about one hour. It's what we started at 8.20, so we'll go 9.20. Sorry, guys. We'll try to start her there. Thank you, Seth. Tina? Well, in the words of St. Peter, it's good to be here. Although, uh, when he said those words, he probably had more reason to say it was good to be there than we do at the moment, but nonetheless, it's good to be here. Um, there's one thing that I don't like uh, going to a lecture is when the lecture has nothing to do with the title. And so I've decided I'm going to make sure that I don't do that to you. The, the title for this lecture is Animal or Angel, Who Are You? So I thought in any case in the first 30 seconds I'd just give an answer. And that way no matter what happens after that you can't accuse me of, of not having talk relate to the title. So the answer is uh, both and neither. Okay. But seriously, um, that is the answer. And I'm going to give a, a reason for that. And it might seem a somewhat strange one. I'm going to say a way that, that human beings are like animals and then a way that they are like angels. We are like animals, but unlike angels in the fact that we reach maturity or our completion through stages. This is the way all animals are. They, they grow up. They reach, as it were, what they're supposed to be one step at a time. This is not the case for angels. Angels never grow up, even in just a spirit on the spiritual level. They never mature. They didn't have a spiritual life in which they were growing closer to our Lord. There was a moment when they were tested, and they either did God's will or they didn't. And then that's who they are forever. 
So there was, there was no, there's no turning back, there's no changing. They wouldn't want to, and they can't. So there's no growing up, there's no development in angels. In men, as in all animals, there is. We become who we are, if we're going to become who we are, through stages, through cultivation, through much effort. But how are we like angels? Well, all the meaning of our life is from our one great spiritual destiny in that we are like the angels and we are unlike the animals. The source of all meaning for us, period, is from spiritual realities. That meaning overflows into the material realm, but it is simply from the spiritual realm. So we might say then, kind of putting those two things together, we reach an unchanging spiritual good through stages of cultivation. And that makes us be completely unique in God's creation. So are we animals? Are we angels? Well, we're both, or we're neither, depending on how you look at it. That said, I'm going to step back and take a different approach to introducing the topic. I always like to begin with a quotation from Scripture, and I'm going to begin with the fourth chapter of the Gospel of St. John, which I'll refer a couple times this evening, in the tenth verse. I'm only going to give you the first half of the verse, because it's a very powerful one just in itself. If only you knew the gift of God. If only you knew the gift of God. Of course, you know our Lord is speaking to the Samaritan woman. Of course, you know he's speaking to us. Perhaps the most basic gift of God that we have, that we need to know, is our human nature is who we are. One aspect of the wise man is that he's always willing to go back and look again and again and again at the most basic things. So what I'd like to do this evening with you is that look at this most basic gift from God that we have, who we are. I'm honored, I'm glad that you've come out this evening, animal or angel, who, who are you? Kind of a, a, a bold topic, something that I'd, I'd say the fact that you're willing to come to such a lecture means that you have a sense of, you know, though obviously I already kind of know the answer to this question, I want to look at it some more. That's a sign of wisdom that we are willing to go back to something basic, or in a sense, what is more important. St. Paul said he preached Christ and Christ crucified. I'm not a preacher. I'm certainly not St. Paul. But I am a philosopher, 
And as a philosopher, I, to a certain extent, try to follow the father of philosophers, we might say, and that is Socrates. And he was relentless in saying to anyone who would listen, you must know thyself. So I come before you to hopefully just lead you in a kind of meditation. And in that meditation, I hope that we can come to a deeper understanding of who we are, and ultimately why? Well, let me just finish that verse from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of St. John. If thou didst know the gift of God, and who it is who says to thee, give me to drink, thou perhaps would have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. When St. Thomas comments on this profound statement, he emphasizes the word perhaps. He says, perhaps upon seeing such great truths about the gift of God, perhaps we will correspond to the grace of God. Perhaps we will rise to the occasion and we will turn to God and we will truly pray to him for his grace and be saved, perhaps. That is my only goal, that we might, by reflecting upon who we are, realize a little bit more the gift of God, and then perhaps our realizing a little more the gift of God will ask him, and he'll give us living water. What I'd like to do is, is to, it's, it's going to be primarily a, a philosophical reflection, but one of the main reasons I love pursuing philosophy is that philosophy always gets us to the deepest questions. And the answers to the deepest questions are always Christ. So philosophy, true philosophy, always comes around to Christianity. And don't ever, ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Philosophy always leads to Christianity if it's truly done. If it doesn't, it is not philosophy. For philosophy, according to the great fathers of philosophy, is the pursuit of wisdom. And wisdom is knowledge of the highest things. And Christianity is that. So we will culminate in Christ as the answer to the question that we're looking at. So, I'd like to, to lead our reflection on who we are by doing something a little different than you might have expected. And that is by taking a look at the first and most basic revelation of God that there is. What's, what's the most basic way that God has revealed himself to us? What if I asked you that? A little bit of a trick question. What if, what's the most basic way that God has shown himself to us? Through the things he made. There we go. Through the things he made. The wise man, when he looks at the world around him. He sees it for what it is. 
And again here I'm going to make a statement. Don't let anyone ever tell us otherwise. The natural world bespeaks where it comes from if we have eyes to see. There are many currents, let's just say, in modern science that would skew our vision of the world so as to make it be less revelatory of God. But you and I know that it is the most basic revelation of God. And if we look with truly wise eyes, we can see that. How, what does the wise man see when he looks at creation? I'd say the most fundamental thing that honest, objective eyes see in looking at creation is design. Creation speaks that it is designed. I'd like to uh, have you look at your quotation sheet. This first quotation here is from a pretty difficult philosophical text. I'm not going to give you the context. But I, I think you'll be able to follow basically what's going on here. And what you're, what you're going to see here, I'm going to tell you before we read it, is this is a philosophical argument. There's more here than we're going to be able to fully do justice to. But there's an argument here that at the roots of the world is a person. It is bad philosophy to hold that the, that the roots of the material, natural world are impersonal, mechanistic forces. This is the dominant view of modern science, and it is bad philosophically. St. Thomas. Consequently, if the position mentioned above, and the position mentioned that he had just mentioned, is a view that's been there since the earliest times of thinkers, there were thinkers who were saying, hey, at root, we have an explanation for the world just if you look at the basic forces of the fundamental elements, which is, is fundamentally the same thing that the vast majority of scientists would say today. Fundamentally, philosophically, it's the same position, and that's what some early Greeks held. That's why the position I mentioned above were true. All the harmony and usefulness found in things would be the result of chance. This was actually what Empedocles held. He asserted that it was by accident that the parts of animals came together in this way through what Empedocles called friendship. And this was his explanation of an animal and of a frequent occurrence. This explanation, of course, is absurd, for those things that happen by chance happen only rarely. We know from experience, however, that harmony and usefulness are found in nature, either at all times, or at least for the most part. This cannot be the result of mere chance. It must be because an end is intended. And that final sentence there is the key one. Again, this is a very philosophical argument. We're not going to be able to do it justice. That would, that would, that would take a bit of time. I just want to expose you to this where that the final clause, it must be because an end is intended, 
Here's the wise man looking at the natural world and seeing with objective eyes an amazing, amazing order and design. And he says, this cannot come about by chance. It must be intended. And intention means a person. So there's a person who is designing. St. Augustine captures something very similar when he says in his, con- in his confessions, making a very philosophical point, creatures call out, we did not make ourselves. There's a lot packed into that statement. If we really look at it, creatures call out, we do not make we did not make ourselves. I just really quickly have to have to tell you a, a story. I'm a, I'm a new pig farmer, and I've, I have two, I've had two sows farrow, and maybe this is a new vocabulary word for you here this evening. Farrow, if it's not, I apologize. Farrow means to, to give birth for a sow. And I've had two sows farrow. One had nine piglets, and the other had seven. I was there present at the one who had the nine, and it was really a very, very amazing experience. I'm not going to make my wife mad by comparing it to a home birth. Um, but it, it, as, as the little piglets kind of came shooting out, which they really kind of did, it was quite fascinating. I won't be graphic, but I, I, it was an occasion for a, a, an amazing insight into nature as the, as the little piglet came out. First, it's, you know, it's all wet, squirming. It just, in a matter of 60 seconds, it kind of shakes it off, opens its eyes, and starts looking around, and, and, and in this amazingly hesitating way, starts to walk towards, up over this huge leg, towards where it's going to be fed. And I watched this happen again, and again, and again. And, and, and I just invite you for 20 seconds with me to think about what in the world is going on behind that? That little baby pigs are born knowing what to do. Which they surely do. It is philosophically absurd to hold that that could be the result of mere impersonal forces through any number of millions of years acting randomly. As though you could say, well, one day there were baby piglets that were born that just happened to look for the milk and they're the ones who survived. Such a thing is simply ludicrous. The, ability, the possibility we have in simple things in the world around us to have a profound insight into our maker. How he has put order into things unto the goodness of all. So the wise man, when he looks at the world around us, he sees design, he sees the wisdom of God written into things. This said, I want to take this as the basic principle then for our looking at our own human nature. We turn to look at man. Let's start with the words of Shakespeare through the mouth of Hamlet. Oh, what a piece of work is man. 
I just simply invite you to look afresh with me. And there's so many different angles we might take. I'm going to take simply one. But look afresh with me at this amazing thing in our tired and our jaded age to look again at human nature and be amazed and to, and to pray, Lord, that I might see what you have made me and all those around me to be. The main thing, think keeping this theme of design going, that we would see when we look at natural things is they have natural tendencies. God, as it were, has put his wisdom into them, and that is shown particularly in the fact that all natural things are trying to do something. They're trying to go somewhere. This is very obvious in a tree, right? It's trying to gross grow. It's trying to become something. In human nature, then, too, we want to look and say, what are the natural tendencies of man for the way that we know things is particularly by looking at their natural tendencies. What are they striving to become? Man, surely, is full of longing. He is a creature of tendencies. We might say he is a creature of desires. We always know a natural thing from its natural tendencies. You can say that about inanimate things. You can say it about a tree. You can say it about a pig. And yes, man is like other living things. You can say it about man. We can know man by looking at his natural tendencies. Isn't it obvious then, in human experience, that we have <coughs> desires that are beyond our desires on the bodily level? In other words, that we have tendencies, that we have desires, that we have a longing for something that transcends animal life. We're truly animals, but we have these desires that obviously transcend everything that goes on as regards animality. So something that is, again, immediately evident, I'd say, to the objective eye, is that the human soul is made to live a spiritual life. We understand a thing by its desires, its longing, its tendency. And surely we experience in our own lives and looking around, at the end of the day, we have desires that transcend our bodies. That in some sense then, our life should be, our life must be, as the angels, consumed with spiritual realities. This does not mean that the bodily realm is irrelevant. The bodily realm always remains relevant. And indeed, we can say we look to the body to understand the soul. One of the beautiful things in how God has designed things is he has made the body to, dis to bespeak who we are. God has written into our bodies who we are as spirits. This is, for instance, the insight behind Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. In the body, you see the spiritual 
calling of man. So, written into our body is the truth about man. This shows up in many ways, but there's one particularly that I want to focus on. I want to look at what is perhaps the most prominent aspect of bodily life. And that is the realm of eating. And for a few minutes, I want to look at you at the reality of human eating and human hunger. Something that we can all very much relate to. And in that, I think we'll be able to see, best of all perhaps, just who we are. What's the basic structure of eating? Well, a few things obvious that we can say about it. Hunger, or the desire for nourishment, endures and grows until it is fulfilled. It's a strong inclination. Another very important point, certain things satisfy hunger and certain things do not. Incredibly obvious point on the bodily level, but one that will have profound spiritual significance. I always think of my wife, whose grandfather uh, was in Ukraine in the 1930s when Stalin um, starved many millions of uh, Ukrainians to death. And my wife's grandfather remembered people eating bark. Bark does not satisfy. Certain things satisfy human hunger, and certain things do not. This is particularly obvious in extreme circumstances. But it's really obvious even if we're not in extreme circumstances, if we consider it. Final point about eating is food is assimilated or transformed into the structure of the one that's eating. Now, let's take bodily hunger as an image or as a pointer to something deeper, to the hunger that most of all constitutes who man is. For isn't it the case that really you can identify an animal, as it were, with its hunger? I think particularly of my pigs. This is perhaps particularly obvious with pigs, but really all animals are like that. We think of pigs just particularly because the way they eat is just so well, ravenous. But I mean, animals particularly can be identified with their hunger. Is, is that not their life? Their life is in pursuing the satisfaction of their hungers. As it were, that's really who they are, isn't it? So, the same will be the case for man. But we see man has these deeper hungers. Man has a spiritual hunger. He has a hunger for spiritual food and for spiritual life. And, and the interesting thing is, this is an absolutely uncontestable, historically verifiable, anthropological fact. All men have a desire for spiritual goods, and when they don't have them, they are not satisfied. 
You can find individuals who, for various subjective reasons in their own life, may deny such a point. But the bird's eye view sees you can't deny that. It's simply historically and anthropologically obvious. You and I know from our own experience and from the experience of those around us, the satisfaction of bodily hunger never satisfies the man. For the man has the deeper hunger. And it's that deeper hunger that we are fundamentally going to identify now with who we are. Matthew 4.4 Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just as only certain things satisfy bodily hunger, it is obvious that only certain things will satisfy that spiritual hunger that is man. If you'd be so kind as to take a peek at um, your quotation number three. Here we are in St. Thomas's commentary on the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John. Of course, you know, you knew that we were going to come to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of St. John. Shall we not just stop and think for a moment? Is there any image that our Lord uses more often to speak about himself in relation to us than is that which satisfies hunger? Again and again and again, he is either bread or water to us. It's his own image. And in all of those different images, is he not telling us who we are by telling us what our own most fundamental desire is, even if we don't realize it? But in chapter 6, verse 27, our Lord says, and, and note how he, he's playing on the kind of animal, angel theme himself. Do not work for the food that perishes. He knows you need it, right? But don't work for that. But for that which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. St. Thomas helps us understand now how our Lord is teaching us about spiritual realities from the bodily. St. Thomas loves it when our Lord does that. He thinks this is the basic way that God teaches us. Again, going back to the main fundamental way that he reveals things to us from the bodily. And look at what he says. I'm in the third quotation. And I'm just going to read out loud what I have in the bold letters. Now just as the body is sustained by food... So that which sustains the spirit is called its food. The food that sustains the body is perishable, since it is converted into the nature of the body. But the food that sustains the spirit is not perishable, because it is not converted into the spirit. Rather, the spirit is converted into its food.
consider with me, if you will, a couple of the, the key insights here into the human soul. First of all, again, that the soul is like the body in its need for nourishment. It's important to us this is not some weak metaphor. Oh, it's like food for the soul. Chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> Not some sweet metaphor. It's a hard reality. Something that's always hard for us to realize that is more obvious to the wise men. Bodily things are the way they are because spiritual things are the way they are. So the reality of bodily food and how it nourishes is the way it is because of what the soul is. It's going to sound funny for me to put it this way, but, but think, in the eternal chambers, when God decided to make animals that would eat, he was clearly thinking how to show to these angel animals. What am I to their souls? I'll give them bodies that will need to eat. That's why it's speaking forth the reality. That's why it was designed. And again, that's why it's so important that we realize the world is designed from top to bottom. It's not some accidental evolution. That we eat is supposed to bespeak the relationship of the human soul to those spiritual goods which alone will satisfy it. Note the key difference, though. There, there are always genuine differences between what's going on the bodily level and the spiritual realm. On the spiritual level, rather than the food being assimilated to the one eating, the soul is in a sense assimilated to its object. Just a simple little turnaround there. Now, how's that for something worth considering? Worth meditating on how many of us in our souls are, as it were, fixated on nourishment for the soul that is not lofty and satisfying, and our souls are becoming assimilated to that, to the extent that we make wealth be our goal, to the extent that we make honors from men be our goal. To the extent that we make bodily pleasures be our goal, what we fixate our soul on, our soul becomes assimilated to that. The, the, the Greeks have a rather biting term for people like that, which perhaps is most of us. They call them small-souled men. For the soul has, as it were, become likened unto those low things with which it is fixated. It's trying to be nourished, as it were, with that which does not nourish. And it is 
by an unchanging law becoming like unto that which it takes as its object. Of course, how worthy of meditating on when we turn that around and think when we make truly noble and lofty things, what we fixate our soul upon and seek to nourish our soul upon, that our soul becomes likened unto those things. So what is the food of the human soul? I'm down in the next paragraph there at the bottom of the page. I gave you the fuller quotation for your edification for later, but I just want to focus right in on that bold sentence. This food, in other words, the true spiritual food, and to a certain extent, things that don't really nourish you won't even call them food, right? You might eat bark, but it's not really food. Many people eat things that don't really nourish, but when St. Thomas says, well, what is the food, the real food? This food is God himself. Insofar as he is the truth, which is to be contemplated, and the goodness, which is to be loved. Now here, even at the, at the height of theology here, St. Thomas the philosopher comes through, for one can only do theology well when one has a solid philosophy that is grounding it. I just want to note something that will come later in the uh, couple of lectures here coming up. He refers here to those twin towers of those twin powers of soul that we share with the angels. Intellect, or reason, and will. When he says, this food is God himself, insofar as he is truth, which is to be contemplated, that corresponds to our intellect. In the goodness which is to be loved, that corresponds to our will. God is food for us according to our nature. Here, according to that which we share in common with the angels, intellect and will, that which truly nourishes those two powers, which most constitute who we are. Herein is the drama of human life. Herein is the drama of human fulfillment. Man is a hunger for knowledge of the truth and love of the good. I say to you, that's who you are. You are a spiritual hunger for knowledge of the truth and love of the true good. But the drama is, will we realize the true nature of this hunger which we are? There's the drama. That, in a sense, is the point tonight. Oh, good. That's who we are. No, no it's one thing to say this is who we are. It's another thing for us to experience what it means to be that. As it were... How do we realize what this real hunger is? Can I refer you to the second quotation now? The great Saint Augustine did not, for much of his life, realize who he was. What I mean by that is, he did not realize his own true desires. 
And what, what, an, what an amazing drama that is, that you and I have this desire, but in a sense, we won't necessarily realize that. In a moment, I'm going to say to you, I think herein you can find the key to what you might find as a paradox. Why don't more of us just realize we're not happy doing the silly things we do, and therefore just turn to where we'd be happy? And if we're so obvious that God made us for himself, why don't we live that way? I think the answer to that question is right here. Look at what St. Augustine says. One of his famous confessions. I came to Carthage, where a cauldron of illicit loves left and boiled about me. I was not yet in love, but I was in love with love, and from the very depths of my need, hated myself for not more keenly feeling the need. I sought some objects to love, since I was thus in love with loving, and I hated security and a life with no snares for my feet. For within I was hungry, all for the want, the lack of that spiritual food which is thyself, my God. Yet, though I was hungry for want of it, I did not hunger for it. I had no desire whatever for incorruptible food, not because I had it in, in abundance, but the emptier, was, the emptier I was, the more I hated the thought of it. Because of all this, my soul was sick and broke out in sores, whose itch I agonized to scratch with the rub of carnal things. Carnal. Yet if there were no soul in them, they would not be objects of love. My longing then was to love and be loved. N note note the, the drama there of feeling the pain of great hunger, but there's a real truth in which you can say he didn't hunger for God. Is this not true, perhaps, of most of us? We're in great pain inasmuch as we're not being satisfied. And in some sense, we realize that. So we realize something's wrong. But we don't see clearly enough to really want, to actively want that thing that will, in fact, satisfy us. How do we solve this? I want to take us back again for a moment to the text in the fourth chapter of, of, of St. John. Again, to just kind of heighten the drama in there. Here our Lord is looking at that Samaritan woman. He knows the Samaritan woman is unhappy. And the Samaritan woman knows that she's unhappy. But there's some real truth to saying that Samaritan woman doesn't want the spiritual life. She doesn't want to serve God. But she's very unhappy. And only serving God will make her happy. God knows that. And here he is looking at her. And what does he say to her? If thou didst know the gift of God, and who it is who says to thee, give me to drink, thou perhaps would have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. What's the solution? How is the 
gap bridged to where we are, like the Samaritan woman, in our pain. And there's God. And even sometimes intellectually we know that only He would satisfy us. And some said, surely, the Samaritan woman perhaps even have known, well, only God could satisfy me. But she obviously doesn't because God's saying to her, if only you knew. Some, some, some profound sense we don't know and we don't desire. Why not? Might we not see this situation all the better and perhaps move towards an answer here, and thus a conclusion, by saying, go, let's go backwards again for a moment and see whether the realm of bodily hunger can help us. Can you picture what it would be like to, let's just say, all we had ever had was Wonder Bread. Wonder Bread doesn't particularly satisfy you. I hope it doesn't satisfy you. I hope it doesn't satisfy me. Um, Wonder Bread doesn't particularly satisfy you. So if all you have to eat is Wonder Bread, you, you've got a problem. You're in pain. You're not nourished. But if all you've ever been exposed to is Wonder Bread, what do you got? You've got pain. You realize you're missing something, but you don't know where to turn. Now, isn't that pretty well descriptive of almost everybody on the spiritual level? We, let's say, rather than that more nasty word, they, we are living on Wonder Bread, and we're feeling the effects of that, but as it were, we don't know what to do. Well, in a sense, and that person on Wonder Bread, you might even say to that person, hey, there's this thing called gourmet, all-natural, organic cooking. But if that's just words, the person might say, well, okay, you're telling me there's something that would satisfy me. But I've never tasted it. And so, there's not even really a desire for it because there has been no taste of it. Is this not then the key? I'm going to read you, and, and shame on me, I wish this were on your page of quotations. It's not, because this is the most important one. But it's very short. This also is in St. Thomas's commentary on the sixth chapter of St. John. And guess what the answer is going to be? God knows our problem. You know he knows our problem. And what does God do, as it were, when he sees a problem? He solves it. The question is, do we take the solution? And what do you think St. Thomas is going to say the solution to this is? What is how is God going to intervene in human life to solve the problem of people not knowing themselves by not understanding what will satisfy their own desire. What's God's answer going to be? 
the answer to how is he going to bring out, how is he going to show us who we are by giving us a taste that will finally draw out our true desire? The Eucharist. It's exactly what St. Thomas says. Listen to these two sentences. This is number 897 in his commentary on chapter 6 of the Gospel of St. John. Yet, the Son of Man gives this food in a spiritual way because human nature, weakened by sin, found spiritual food distasteful and was not able to take it in its spirituality. So, fallen man, in his sin, found spiritual food distasteful. You might almost, by analogy, say, if all you've ever had is Wonder Bread, right off the bat, really good cooking might not even immediately taste good to you. You've as it were been so perverted. Your own desires have been so perverted. Now, you ready for the sentence that's going to knock your socks off? Thus it was necessary for the Son of Man to assume flesh and nourish us with it. I'm going to read you those two sentences again. Yet the Son of Man gives this food in a spiritual way because human nature, weakened by sin, found spiritual food distasteful and was not able to take it in its spirituality. Thus it was necessary to solve this problem for the Son of Man to assume flesh and to nourish us with it. The Eucharist, then, is the answer to showing us who we are. Because in the Eucharist, we can, and now you all know we should say can, because not necessarily. Because some of us still even come to the Eucharist, and even then, we must not be properly disposed, because even then, we're falling short. So let's just use the word can. In the Eucharist, we can rediscover the thirsts, the hunger that most characterizes human nature. We can come alive again with that hunger for the one thing that will satisfy us. And only if we come alive with that hunger, of course, will we find it. Again, that's who we are. We are that hunger that is satisfied only there. What's the practical upshot then of what we're seeing here? Think, I suggest for our consideration, in terms of doing all in our power to arouse our own desire for the one thing that is necessary. We must, as the apostles did, spend time with him. Spending time with him, we begin to taste, and beginning to taste, we begin to experience the desire that is most characteristic of who we are. Isn't it like St. Peter 
on Mount Tabor. He said it's good for us to be here with you, Lord. And our Lord, we know, showed those three apostles on Mount Tabor himself as a strengthening for then what they would go out and do. Think how he's thinking in terms of the principle that we've just discussed here this evening. He reveals himself to them so that they taste of who he is. And tasting it, that's their love, that's their desire. And no matter where St. Peter goes, and no matter what St. Peter does, he remembers that. That's who he is. That's what he wants. And that's what his life is about. Period. St. Peter now knows who he is. For his life is about that. In conclusion then, what have we seen about man? I'd like to just give you one little quotation from G.K. Chesterton about man. The point is always that man is not a balloon going up into the sky, nor a mole burrowing merely in the earth, but rather like a tree whose roots are fed from the earth while its highest branches seem to rise almost to the stars. An animal with roots, as it were, if you will, in the earth. An angel whose life is about desiring, seeking, attaining the highest goods. What insight into our faith are we trying to have here? The Eucharist and other practices of the spiritual life are the surest way to discover our identity. They're the surest way to discover who we are. For in them, that desire, again, which is most expressive of who we are, comes alive. Somehow, by the grace of God, that happened in the life of St. Augustine. There came the point where finally he saw, and he wanted it, and that's who he was. And he realized that, and he lived in accord with that desire. Is man an animal or an angel then? Certainly we're an animal. If we were an animal, we wouldn't eat. If we were an animal, we wouldn't have stages of nourishment and growth, even on the spiritual level. But lo, this animal is called to eat the bread of angels. I close with one sentence from a Byzantine post-communion prayer I've always loved very much. Thus when I depart from this life in the hope of life eternal, may I attain that everlasting rest where the sound of those celebrating at your banquet never ceases and where there is no end to the delights of those who behold the ineffable beauty of your face. Thank you very much for your attention.